millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Endy, the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Endy uses proprietary Endy Comfort Foam to make a mattress that's comfortable, supportive, and keeps you cool all night long. Endy offers a 100-night free trial and free shipping all across the country, so there's no risk to get involved. Go to endy.ca and use the offer code COMMONS for an extra $50 off. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes or less. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash commons and enter promo code commons when you subscribe. Fuck Nazis. Okay, feels good to say, but we have to figure out what to do about the Nazis. Because, well, the Nazis are Nazis. So, as an Anishinaabe comedian and public speaker, I often talk about race and justice. So when some Nazi goes around universities putting up propaganda posters, or when white nationalist Faith Goldie gets invited to spew hate in a talk called Ethnocide at Laurier, people ask me to debate those ideas. It's become a common refrain. Lindsay Shepard, who invited Faith Goldie to give the talk, wrote an article defending her decision in McLean's. She writes, I don't agree with the far-right commentator, but we must be able to freely engage with and deconstruct her views, not silence them. But I won't freely engage with those ideas. Because the end game of someone who wants an all-white country is for me to be dead. That's what they're asking for. So I won't try to reason with them or give credit to their arguments. But there is an important and pressing issue here. And the question is simple. What do we do about the Nazis? So here's what I'll do today. I will talk to a former neo-Nazi. Elisa Hadigan was a core member of Canada's most notorious white supremacist group, the Heritage Front. She eventually turned on them and was instrumental in taking them down which she talks about in her memoir, Race Trader. And even though she joined the group in the early 90s, her personal story tells us a lot about how these groups operate today. I'm Ryan McMahon. My co-host, Hadia Rodrique, is away. Feel better soon, Hadia. From Canada land, this is Commons.
Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Endy, the leading online sleep brand in Canada. Endy has a simple mission, to provide Canadians from coast to coast with the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. I ordered my Endy and my kid stole it. I had her help me with, uh, with some copy and I was like, well, just write down what you think about the bed. And she's like, dad, seriously, I'm getting to school on time in the morning because I sleep so good. <laughs> so, yeah, she loves it. I can honestly say my head has never hit the Endy. She won't let me sleep on it. Andy's reviews are the best in the business, and they're outselling the competition for good reason. If you've never tried an Endy, try one out today. They have a risk-free 100-night trial. If you don't love it, they'll take it back. Since they're made locally, they can cut out the cost for stuff like duties and international shipping, bringing you mattresses for between $675 and $950. And you can get another $50 off by going to andy.ca and entering the promo code COMMONS. That's andy.ca, promo code COMMONS. This episode is supported by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Now, I can tell you that I'm actually using my HelloFresh boxes with my kids, and they're learning how to cook from them. They love it. The box shows up at our house with all the fresh ingredients we need measured to the exact quantity so my kids can't screw up the recipes. Now... Usually, my kids would put together some sort of concoction that they would find in the fridge, and I'd have to smile, grin, bear it, pretend to eat it, wait till they went upstairs, then throw it in the garbage and order a pizza later. But HelloFresh allows me to skip all that. For 50% off your first box and to cook delicious meals with your kids, visit HelloFresh.ca slash commons and enter the promo code commons when you subscribe. Okay, my name is Elisa Hadigan. I'm a writer and speaker and a consultant on far-right extremism. When I was 16 years old, I was uh, recruited into Canada's most uh, powerful white supremacist group to date, the Heritage Front. I was with them between ages 16 and 18. I ended up uh, gathering information against them, testified against three leaders, including the leader Wolfgang Droge, which led to convictions. So I helped to shut down the Heritage Front. And since then I uh, went on with my life and uh, got a degree in criminology. And um, I've been speaking out and talking about what's going on then and today and the connections. Before you were introduced to the Heritage Front, what was your life like up to that point? 
I came to Canada from communist Romania when I was 11. And I had grown up in a very group identity country where I didn't really have a sense of who I was. And so it was a radical shift when my parents immigrated here. And suddenly I was supposed to discover who I was and have a sense of uh, my own personal identity. And that didn't go so well. Um, my father died very shortly after we arrived. And uh, my mother was abusive. And there was a lot of abuse and uh, anger in my family. So I ended up in uh, group homes and foster care between ages 14 and 15. I was being bullied. And at one point, I was the only white girl in the group home that I was in. And I started assuming that it was because I was white, even though the kids were making fun of me for all sorts of other reasons. Like I didn't know what rap music was and I didn't know who Michael Jackson was, but I felt very self-conscious and um, really just lost. So I dropped out of school at 15 and a half in grade nine, and I went back to live with my mother in Regent Park, which was um, um, quite the um, crime-ridden uh, inner-city neighborhood at the time. And um, again, I was just lost, had no friends. And then one day, shortly after I turned 16, I, I was watching a TV program, and uh, they were talking about um, European heritage and what's wrong with being proud of that. There was a guy in a suit. He didn't look like a Nazi or a skinhead or anything like that. It was a guy in a suit saying, well, how come there is such a thing as Black History Month and we can't have European Heritage Month? I missed Romania a lot. And the idea of there being a group out there that celebrated European heritage and, and wanted to lobby for that sort of thing made sense, like on a very basic level. <laughs> so then I wrote down the... Um, address of the organization, I wrote the wrote to them. And they sent me a local um, group uh, phone number for a group called the Heritage Front. And when I called this hotline, they had um, a recorded hotline. Um, they were just speaking about being proud. There was nothing about anger or racism toward other people, just mainly being proud of yourself and what's wrong with that. So I called and I left a message kind of nervously because, you know, I, I still I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody in Toronto, but I left a message. And within like the, in, on the same day, uh, Wolfgang Droge, who was one of the main two leaders of the Heritage Front, called me back right away. And we met uh, in front of the Eaton Center, which was a totally public setting because I hadn't even gone on a date with anybody on that day. I was still very naive. And um, I was a little nervous about meeting this adult man, you know, but he was so nice. And we met up and he was so praising me and saying that we needed people like you in the movement and you're our f hope in our future. And he became a father figure. Take me back to that meeting. You're in front of the Eaton Center. What kind of drew you into this idea that that perhaps you could help well he he said that they had just registered the heritage front as a um as a business in the province of ontario just a month earlier um so this was september 1991 and then when we met he said let's go take a walk to city hall where they're having a meeting and as we're walking to city hall he's telling me you know we're just a white rights lobby group and someday we're going to replace the reform party and reform party was uh, the main conservative opposition organization at the time. So to me, it seemed like they were just basically a conservative political organization. And then they, he said, we've got a new magazine that we're going to put out. And, uh, you know, because he had heard, because he'd asked me what, what were my hobbies. And I said, I liked reading and writing. So he said, well, you can write for our new magazine. And that was like this most amazing thing for me. Like I'm 16 and I'm going to get to write for a magazine. 
So you're targeted at the age of 16 and you get swept up very quickly into the heritage front. What are those early days like for you when you first get involved, when you take his word and you start being involved with the heritage front? He made sure to meet with me every week that first week. He gave me tons of material. And then he said, you know, you're just what we want. And I'm doing an interview with so-and-so from Toronto Sun or Star or whatever press was uh, interviewing him at the time. And he wanted to take me along as this new face of the Heritage Front. And I thought it was because I was the only young girl there. And, you know, and I, and I understood even with, with my naivete that it was about marketing the Heritage Front as this kind of younger uh, fresher, not as violent looking organization. I didn't realize just how fast the indoctrination would be. I would literally uh, memorize lines. He would say, memorize, just, you know, read this through and just uh, remember all the key pointers. And then I would, on cue, be saying things like, I'm just here because I'm proud of my race and we don't hate anybody and all this sort of thing. Whereas within a month, I had been introduced to many violent skinheads with uh, criminal records for assault. And I was also introduced to Ernst Sando, who was uh, for about 30 years, the world's greatest publisher of Holocaust denier propaganda that he sent out material all over the world. And um, he became like my grandfather. So every time there was a situation where I'd have to run away from my mom because there was abuse and neglect, I could run to Ernst's house. So they instantly provided me with shelter and food and most importantly, a family. And um, yeah, so because they were my family, I wanted to please them. So if Wolfgang said, we're going to do an interview or I want you to speak at this Martyrs Day rally with uh, where David Irving is going to speak or, you know, meet David Duke or whatever, because uh, Wolfgang had been in the clan in Louisiana with David Duke. And that's the that's the thing about Canada. Not only do are we in denial about what happened here and what's still happening, but also the worldwide connections. I mean, um, David Irving is uh, again a holo- major player in the Holocaust denier movement out of England, and he was brought into Canada and he spoke at rallies in London and Kitchener and Toronto, and uh, he was uh, plugged into Ernst Zundel's crowd, whereas the Heritage Front brought in uh, Tom and John Metzger, who were uh, the heads of uh, white Aryan resistance in the States, which was the most dangerous and largest, well, organized organization in the States through the 80s and 90s. Who do you see in your peer group in terms of other young, radicalized, politicized uh, young people? As you start to look around in those early days, who do you see beside you? Are they other people like you that have newly immigrated? Are they other people like you that are looking for a sense of pride in who they are? Who are the people that are around you in those early days? I was the only immigrant that I know, and I was teased for that. But essentially, there were uh, several other young men. There were people who took uh, charge, uh, like George Birdie, who was the head of the uh, rock band, the hate rock band called Rahoa, which stood for Racial Holy War. And he was connected with Church of the Creator, which is an American uh, far-right chain of groups that's still operating today. But the far majority were just um, street skinheads who would join, not necessarily because of ideology, but because they felt angry and lost and were looking for a reason to go out and beat people up, frankly. And um, 
Wolfgang and Ernst tried to um, kept me pretty sheltered. Like I didn't hang out with them other than at rallies. But I was that was the first time I was instructed on how to flirt with people and recruits. And you see uh, sexualization of uh, women in the far right happening um, for recruitment and other purposes today. But at the time in the 90s, if you think about it, you would see far right uh, or neo Nazis and Klansmen on Jerry Springer and on Geraldo Rivera with uh, you know their full regalia and Klan robes on, and they were joke. They were they were freaks, and uh, there was this kind of awareness that happened in the '90s that we need to polish up that image and uh, go normal, you know, start to appear normal. So inside the core of the organization, um, there was a lot of recognition that these young people who are joining the skinhead gangs, we need them because they're the brawn of the movement, but they're not supposed to be the brains. The brains are the people in the suits who are representing the the movement in the media. When you were recruiting, give me an example of somebody interested in the movement and then give me an example of someone not interested. What 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 kind of things were said on on both sides? For the interested people, you know, I would downplay any kind of violence or anything like that, and I would just say, you know, it's about socializing and having a cause and friends and come to a concert and you know get to know great new people. So that's sort of like the simplest way that I could draw them in. Now, there were lots of people who would just like throw back a flyer in my face or laugh or say, go away, whatever. And I just thought, you know, they're all brainwashed. You know, it's kind of the idea that if you're not on our cause, then you're 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 brainwashed by uh, this uh, shadow government that's operated by the Jews. And, and you know, we know the truth and you're going to come around eventually. So <laughs> I didn't take it personally because it was a numbers game. Was there any point in those early days where you had second thoughts or where you felt this was actually not a good movement to be a part of? In the first couple of weeks, I um, at one point in time, I had said to Wolfgang, like, I had supported the Oka crisis, you know, and I had, you know, rallied at Queen's Park in favor of Native rights. I said, I don't have a, any kind of racism feelings toward Aboriginals or Jews or anybody else like that. So how how do I deal with that? And he said, well, Aboriginals get to live in their own uh, separate reservation. So why can't white people have their own white as state? And again, in my simplistic worldview, it somehow made sense that, well, if other people can have their separate areas, then why, why can't we lobby toward that? I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, Grant Bristow. Bill Dunphy from the, the Toronto Sun eventually reveals that one of the founders of the group is a CSIS mole. Yeah. Can you break down how that came to be? Well, he had uh, joined the Nationalist Party, which was a group that preceded the Heritage Front. And uh, when they were in Libya for an on-all-expense-paid trip by Muammar Gaddafi, for for his anniversary of his regime, and he had invited a whole bunch of extremist groups from all over the world, from every ideological background. Delegates from this nationalist party went to Libya, and then Grant Bristow um, sat down with Wolfgang Droge and a couple of other people and said, "Let's start our own group. You know, it'd be better. We can do whatever we want." And that's what happened when they came back. So Grant Bristow was basically an equal leader in the second, or some would say, the first in command of the Heritage Front. He was known. To to be behind the scenes. So he appointed himself as the intelligence director of the Heritage Front. And as such, he directed a lot of the um, operations of uh, how we were going to go after our um, 
the enemies of the Heritage Front. So he basically spearheaded this terror campaign of harassment and uh, stalking against Antifa. At the time, they were called anti-racist action, as well as uh, members of the Jewish uh, population and also um, the director of the Native Canadian Center, uh, Rodney Bobby Wash, was uh, very severely targeted, as well as uh, LGBT members of um, the community. So he had people like harass them 24-7. He'd call uh, their places of employment and make up stories that they were pedophiles and various ter- other terrible things and get, try to get them fired. And... Um, he fed a lot of this information to people who were even uh, members of the Canadian Airborne Regiment, where a lot of very violent uh, skinheads, uh, neo-Nazis, were found to have been part of this Canadian Airborne Reg- Regiment, which was eventually disbanded because a couple of people tortured to death a Somalian teenager on the bases there. So uh, he really escalated, pretty much single-handedly escalated the violence and aggression factor of the Heritage Front. And I should point out that even after he was revealed to have been an agent provocateur and not a single arrest and conviction of a sing- any Canadian white supremacist or neo-Nazi ever resulted out of what was known as Operation Governor, um, which took several years and millions of dollars poured into this. And uh, really, it's a shame that uh, they caused a lot of damage and a lot of hate and a lot of instigation, but not a single person was convicted. The Security Intelligence Review Committee you know, said that Bristow indeed, you know, tested the limits and and did good work that he actually diverted violence and weakened racist efforts against minority groups and that he was successful in getting white supremacists deported and actually provided a lot of valuable intelligence. What do, what do you say to those claims? I'll say what I said in uh, 1994 when I uh, testified at the House of Commons. It's all a whitewash. He helped the Metzgers get into Canada by uh, getting them dressed like rabbis so they could cross the border. And then after they were allowed to speak for and and stayed at the Latvian Hall for two to three hours, then suddenly immigration came and arrested them. So that uh, whole meeting was allowed to proceed. As far as him averting danger and attacks, I say prove it. Um, He averted nothing. Nobody got arrested. If there had been any kind of a plot against any kind of group, um, why was nobody arrested? Why was Wolfgang still going around? Uh, No, uh, I mean, nobody was ever convicted and uh, sentenced based on any kind of evidence by Bristow. And so therefore, what could he have averted if there was any kind of serious plot or weapons or any kind of situation like that? Why wouldn't CSIS have acted? Because nothing had happened. He was just an agent provocateur. You played a big part in, in taking the group down. What happened? Well, after I saw the violence escalate and after I was asked to harass people that I didn't feel comfortable in harassing because they were gay, I had to basically confront the fact that I too was gay and I started to identify with the people they were targeting. And that was a pivotal point in my decision to eventually leave the Heritage Front. But at the time, I didn't know what to do, where to go. So I, I thought I can never get away from them. So I attempted suicide. I woke up in the hospital with the doctors asking me, you know, is there anybody we can call or we have to keep you here under psychiatric observation? And the only phone number I had in my pocket was of this woman, anti-racist activist who was a lesbian, who I had been asked directly by Grant Bristow to harass. So I called her and uh, we started meeting in secret for about a month. And after that, I made the decision that not only did I want to leave, I wanted to get them back for everything that they had done. And so 
for a period of four months, I started uh, writing down every kind of illegal weapon I saw to recount all sorts of uh, incidents where crimes had occurred or where I'd heard people speak uh, about committing crimes. And in total, there were about 30 affidavits that I signed and uh, we presented to the OPP. Some of this led to the trial against Wolfgang and two other members of the Heritage Front. What was your life like after you left the Heritage Front? What were those early days like uh, for you? I was on a hit list, basically. I had to um, hide out for four months before the trial. And for about a year after, I traveled all up and down the east coast of Canada. I lived in Quebec, Nova Scotia, everywhere. And basically, yeah, I was marked. And I felt really resentful that I wasn't given witness protection, considering the fact that I led to uh, three white supremacists being convicted. And uh, Grant Bristow, who had not done anything to shut down the white supremacist movement in Canada, was given a package worth a million dollars. I couldn't even afford to get a change of ID. So that was a very difficult time. And it was because of activists and um, just people in general who opened their doors to me. And I, I was able to sleep on sofas all over the country with uh, Quebecois farmers, with Aboriginal activists, with uh, a black reverend out in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. So these people who knew what I had done and yet were so welcoming and forgiving that they completely and profoundly changed my vision of human beings and how kindness could be uh, transformative. You're now living openly in the same city where all of this uh, went down. How are things for you now? I don't have anything in my name. I don't have a driver's license. You know, a lot of the people from the 90s are no longer here. Ernst Sundo's dead. Wolfgang's dead. Um, but, you know, there was a new generation and doing the activism and speaking out the way I do, I've still had to go to the police a couple of times last year because there's a lot of people out there who are trolling, but they can also send uh, death threats through my uh, my website. I've received them through Twitter. So it, it just goes on. So a lot of the people that, that were active when you were are no longer around. But are you seeing the movement change at all in terms of the way it was when you were involved and the way you see it now? Yeah, the biggest difference I notice is just the speed at which you can recruit somebody. I mean, before you would have to sit down with somebody pretty much face to face, go to a pub, you know, talk to them. Now a recruiter can indoctrinate somebody a thousand or two thousand miles away. And uh, memes and documents are shared like lightning, you know, speed. So it's just constant and you can't take down one person uh, without their ideology or the propaganda or the memes are still floating out there. So it's much more dangerous and rapid escalation. Also, the websites are providing these um, centralized hubs for where these lone wolves like uh, Anders Breivik or uh, Dylan Roof and all these uh, people who are supposed to be lone wolves and domestic terrorists, they actually have gone to those websites and they're echo chambers that uh, propagate hate. So as dangerous as it was in the 90s, it's a hell of a lot worse now. What role do you see, you know, private corporations taking in terms of, you know, shutting down this movement on their platforms? Well, I think there has to be um, a lot of response from law enforcement and patrolling the internet. Like I know when I went to uh, report the threats to me, uh, to police last year, the fact that there was no particular jurisdiction that they happened to come from someone on the internet made um, the York Regional Police, where I went to report, be more reluctant to uh, take action. So the problem is that we need to have new cyber laws that uh, are effective against um, taking down trolls and people who are actually 
on the internet, like harassing and stalking people and disseminating the propaganda. We also need uh, just more resources toward this end of uh, domestic terrorism. And uh, whereas there's a lot of uh, resources going toward uh, Islamic fundamentalist uh, people, there's this reluctance to look at Christian fundamentalists and maybe just a regular Joe next door kind of person as a terrorist. And if you don't have the money, you can't implement the resources in schools and in the community where this stuff can be caught early. In this new incarnation, because of my public profile and sort of the work that I do, I'm told all the time that I should be open to debating these people. Is it worth it? to engage these ideas? Do we ignore these ideas? Do we respond in the way Antifa uh, responds? What is the best way to respond to this ideology? I think there are issues that are very important and valid and that need to be discussed. And uh, the fact that we're not speaking about those issues, like immigration, like people who are born and bred Canadians in rural settings, feeling like the Canada that they knew back in 1970 has completely changed. And just the demographics in 1970, it was uh, 90% Caucasian and Christian. So there's this fear that the change is bad. And people like this need to kind of be able to express what they feel. But the fact that we are in a country where we're too polite and we don't want to bring up those discussions is leading to the situation where only the extremists have taken and seized upon this platform of discussing it. And so, yes, we can have a discussion and we should have a discussion on race and demographics and politics, but not with extremists. Like what happened with Faith Goldie, for example, that was not a conservative individual coming in and having an open discussion. I mean, when you bring a circus freak to a campus, you're going to get a circus. I mean, this is a woman who who was talking about nuking, uh, sending grenades out to refugee ships. Like somebody like this is not a champion of peace and, and let's discuss race and politics. Like why not bring a ISIS leader to discuss strategies for peace in the Middle East? It's ridiculous. She's using her sexuality, just like Lauren Southern and other women in the far right are doing, just like I was taught to use my sexuality when I was 16 back in the 90s. This is the new face of the movement. And when you have a woman who is not threatening, like when you have a petite, sexy individual who doesn't seem like she's threatening, people will get the idea that the message is equally non-threatening. And they will just think, well, this is about free speech versus safe space. This was not about free speech versus safe space. This was about trying to have a conversation or supposedly trying to have a conversation on issues that do have merit to be discussed, but bringing in a neo-Nazi to discuss them. I mean, the fact that she knows rhetoric uh, that has been written, like 14 words, which was composed by a domestic terrorist a group called The Order in the U.S., which terrorized and bombed and killed people in the 80s and 90s, and she knows their their slogans by heart, tells me all I need to know about this individual. So no, I wouldn't debate somebody who will never even meet me halfway. I don't even know what she believes, to be honest, but I do know that she likes to make money and be in the spotlight. And by going completely radical, I'm willing to bet a lot of people before last month, they probably didn't even know who Faith Goldie was. But now because of this whole thing about, oh, free speech is being taken away and she got shut down, suddenly she's in the spotlight. And people like her and Jordan Peterson and Milo and all these people, it's in their best interest to be as controversial and uh, aggravate, you know, and create more polarization. Um, Because the moment there's like, the demonstrators and the police come and the news cameras come, then they've won already. We're sitting here with with 
these characters, and I, I, I use the word characters very specifically because these are characters. They're, they're like bad guys in movies, and you've yeah. named some of them, Faith Goldie, Jordan Peterson, and now Lindsay Shepard, who this young woman is riding sort of this centrist line where she's just interested in the ideas and engaging with the ideas, and that university should be a place where we yeah. do so. I think Lindsay has crossed the line. I think a lot of people who read what happened to her last year felt that maybe Laurier had uh, overstepped a little bit, but she's completely revealed herself. And I read uh, this piece in McLean's where she's justifying bringing in uh, Faith Goldie to, quote, spark the discussion on the issues in Canada today. And that was a joke. And for her to imagine that bringing in say, David Duke or a Klansman to talk about race relations. I mean, it's tantamount to the same thing. She said things that border on the same stuff that it's it's she's completely betrayed her leanings now. And I think it's unfortunate that she is being swept in this idea that she is part of a cause and she's bringing some sort of revolution to campus ideologies when in fact she's just uh, be becoming more radicalized by the people she surrounds herself with. So is this your experience speaking? Does it sound familiar to you? It's very familiar. I know the you know how, what it's like to surround yourself with people who you think are advocates of free speech and whose you know, just their constant propaganda and the and their ideology serves to kind of start leaning you toward one way. And it's kind of interesting to see how far to the right Lindsay Shepard has gone to the point that she is willing to normalize uh, somebody as extreme as uh, Faith Goldie tells me that she must have lost sight of what is a true centrist position. Are we stuck with the Nazis and the white nationalist movement forever? I think nationalism across the world is uh, pretty much a new norm for now. But I do believe that in another 20 or 30 or 50 years, this will all change because they just simply won't be there. The demographics um, are showing that they uh, are literally dying off. But in the next decade or two, I think we're stuck with this. Alisa, thank you very much for your work. And uh, I wish you well on your journey. And um you mentioned Rodney Bobbywash, who was one of my first teachers, and I would spend time up in his office at the Native Canadian Centre when he was doing the the Indian bus ride tours through Toronto, and he's talking really politically about this being Native land and kind of showing all of these things. And I remember hearing stories about Rodney being harassed and, and things like that, so to connect the dots today for me was a little surreal. Wow, I didn't know that. Rodney was such a transformational impact on me. He was one of the people I stayed with um, at his uh, condo in Ottawa when I was on the run. And uh, I was just so moved by the fact that not only... Not only had I, you know, said nasty things about him on the Heritage Hotline, but that he was so forgiving and embracing. And when I didn't get witness protection, he actually sent uh, a few of his AIM uh, buddies to protect me in the courthouse. And I am so respectful of how brave and honorable those men were compared to what uh, Grant Preston and Sisters were all about. That is our Commons episode for this week. I'm Ryan McMahon. We want to hear from you. Tweet us at Canada Land Commons. That's C-M-N-S. This episode is produced by Kevin Sexton. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, you know where to find us. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.
Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 